The following podcast may contain topics not suitable for a younger audience. Due to the nature of our shows, we also cannot guarantee spoiler-free discussions about anything, so keep that in mind. Borderline podcasts are uploaded almost every week, and you can keep up to date with our podcasts and panels by following us on social media at facebook.com slash borderlinepanels, or on Twitter at B-O-R-D-E-R-P-A-N. Please enjoy the show! Doki doki no We are back from our short musical interlude, and we've got our guest with us today. Uh, we have a great uh, fellow panelist and friend of the Borderline team. We have Tobias McNabb, otherwise known as Reverend Tobias. How's it going, my dude? I am doing quite well. How about yourself? Um, not bad, not bad. What about you, Tori? I'm okay. Good. You uh, doing better or worse than the last time I asked you in part one? Uh, I feel a lot better. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful <laughs> to hear. Um, so, um, Tobias, why don't you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit? Um, because you you haven't been on our show before. And uh, thanks for coming, by the way. We really appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Uh, so, yeah, just tell us, tell the audience a little bit about uh, who you are and all that junk. So, uh, as for myself here, I've been in the fandom for, what, about 15 years now, something like that. I mean, like most people my age, I grew up watching uh, stuff on Toonami. Uh, Pokemon came out, you know, uh, back in middle school, that sort of deal. So I consider myself sort of a middle generation of anime fan. Not quite so much the the older crowd that really grew up buying VHS tapes and somewhere between, the, I would say somewhere between that group and the people watching stuff on Crunchyroll now, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, I've been going to conventions since 2004, uh, my first one being Anime Weekend Atlanta, their 10th year, uh, uh, had their 10th year going, and uh, pretty much been going every year since. Uh, I consider it one of the most consistent things I've done in my life, <laughs> for better or worse. Uh, but yeah, so uh, starting up going to conventions there, uh, moving into eventually sort of staffing and volunteering for various conventions over time, uh, sort of moved into doing panel content and and becoming sort of a quote unquote anime scholar, to use that term very, very loosely, mm -hmm. uh, as it were. And about 2011, I first started doing panels and I just never shut up. <laughs> to be well, honest yeah as, as, as you kind of know so that's kind of where i've settled into my fandom now is uh talking about stuff talking about anime and gaming and all sort of nerd culture stuff yeah. while uh just learning just continuing to learn about things and uh just going you know passing that on and as i sort of i had my current tagline is you know preaching the gospel of of geek culture and geek commentary as as the reverend should do <laughs> show you are a uh, fellow massive gynax and trigger fanboy just like myself and most yes. of the members of borderline all the cool ones really but um tobias you are on staff at arc a uh convention that we were at earlier this year and uh we all have a uh, a wonderful fondness for that for that con um mainly for me and tori i know because it gets gets us up to Asheville, um and um because we never really go up there to our great regret um, but um, it's awesome you uh, working for that small con and making that happen because we all think it's really rad. So 
No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, man, I think I've told you guys before, but Astral's kind of had a history of, of like fan content, panel content uh, just over the past, what, eight years that I've been in town. So it's nice to have a, a, a convention that's got a good, really good culture behind it or really good. Uh, like, uh, you know, it's, it's got a lot of growth potential there. Uh, we just announced this past week we're doing a two day next year. Woo! Yes, awesome. it's now it's now officially a two day convention there. We're going to be opening up Saturday for uh, you know, the whole late night content, more 18 plus content that'll be open until midnight, I believe, with using Sunday as well. Cool. Wonderful. Well, um, as far as I know, we'll be there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you better be. Awesome. <laughs> well, then we will be. Yeah, sure. That's great. Um, but um, yeah, today um, we're going to be doing our series review of Little Witch Academia. It's actually been quite a while since we've done a full series review. I mm -hmm. think the last series proper we reviewed was yuri on ice and that was forever ago. Was forever ago um we've mostly been doing uh, movies and john and i have been doing the live action stuff and um stuff like that so it's nice to be back to a, a full series especially one by a studio who i love and adore uh, more probably more so than any other anime studio out there um but let us see. Um, actually, before that, um, we did our little recap of uh, oh, our experiences yeah. at um, AWA. So if you just want to go ahead and go through what, because uh, you're you're a um, longtime attendee of, of AWA, as you had said. Um, right. So just kind of give us the rundown of your experience and how this sort of how this year fits into the last uh, 10 years of Anime Week in Atlanta that you have absorbed. Uh, for sure. Yeah. So. Um... I like like I said, I consider AWA sort of my my home con, even though I never really lived in Atlanta per se, uh, all of the areas around it. I consider that sort of like my main convention every year. That's the one I would definitely go to. While in recent years, it's been just one of several. It's definitely been my main my main event, and uh, I feel like, especially in the past couple of years, I've really sort of changed my own mentality about it. Insofar as going from uh, you know, there's this whole life cycle of convention goers. So starting off going, just being wide eyed and seeing all these things happening, all the cosplay coming back and seeing a bunch of the same events, things like anime hell run by Dave Merrill, uh, the guy who pretty much started AWA way back and uh, way back in the mid nineties. And then eventually like moving on to sort of finding my own niche in, you know, and not, not so much the world, but in, in the conventioning world as it were, uh, the doing the whole panel thing. Uh, this year, I think I changed a little bit for me because I, I considered it more of like a paneling work convention, which to me isn't so bad. I really see conventions now uh, in my own mindset as more of a working thing. Mm. And so like spend a bit most of the weekend, you know, hanging out with you guys and going to the panels, sort of checking things out, uh, meeting a lot of other panelists, such as, uh, you know, Andrew with NOS Anime, for instance, being able to see his stuff. Uh, seeing a bunch of, of other people here, some of the other uh, convention runners that I know from back home in Alabama. So I consider, yeah, more of like a working networking thing this, this year. And it felt a little bit different. Uh, I didn't get quite so drunk as usually. <laughs> just, just a little bit on Saturday here. But uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was a different experience. But also being back in sort of my quote unquote home, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of refreshing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And um, we, we had a really brief conversation about how um, how age really kind of changes your place and your responsibility in the anime community. Absolutely. 
Yeah, um, because you know there there does come that point where the the wide eyed sort of whimsy of of the anime cons can feel a little bit more muted uh, with age and experience, and hopefully, I hate to use the B word, but burnout. Um, oh yeah. So you know, going to cons is I think it's it's always about reinventing the convention experience for yourself. For sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think back in uh, what was it, twenty ten. I was going through a point, sort of like a post-college burnout thing, where I was just I was trying to follow a couple of things that were coming out, but didn't really find anything that really got me back in anime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to AWA that year, and like I, I just like proposed to myself that I'm gonna actually gonna start caring about this again. You know, it's, at this point, it's kind of a do or die thing. And immediately after I came home, I was checking out the new season and saw there was a new show by Gainax, who I just kind of recently realized was had you know, produced a bunch of my favorite shows, a new show called Panning and Stalking with Garter Belt. <laughs> and it looked a little weird. I uh, didn't like something I would really like, but you know what? It was made by my favorite guys, so let's check it out. And Panning and Stalking with Garter Belt blew me away. It was, it was amazing. Very, very, very different, of course, but also very amazing. And that was one of the first things I started following week to week when I get back into it. And that, and that really kind of changed my outlook on anime. At, Definitely, because um, I mean, I'm I'm kind of experiencing a little bit of that right now because you know, having gone to so many of the same conventions over and over, and while I love them a lot, uh, going to AWA was a really good palate cleanser for me personally. Sort of yes. getting in there, experiencing a a larger version of a con that I had been searching for, like something that was you know more panel based, more yes, you know. Um, you know, networking, connecting based and not always feeling like I'm sort of doing the same thing over and over, but having all of these newer and fresher experiences has really uh, revitalized me to get more motivated to, you know, do that thing, keep that. Oh, that absolutely. Rolling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another thing I like about uh, Anime Weekend Atlanta is that I feel like more so than a convention, there's a lot of the older crowd there. Yes. You've mm-hmm. got a lot of these of the older, uh, the people that are kind of like big name fans now. Uh, so you've got, I mentioned Dave Merrill, uh, the guy who's pretty much made AWA and runs Anime Hell. And just a really great uh, commentator about the really older stuff. You've got Daryl Surratt of AWO, who sure, he's usually there with like Gerald and Clarissa, but I don't think they were there this time. Uh, I didn't see this year Tim Eldred, who usually shows who runs one of the, like the biggest Star Blazers site out there, and one of the biggest Star Blazers fans. And he usually runs a bunch of older panels as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't quite see so much this year, but usually AWA has a bunch of older stuff. And if you dig into it, you can find people that have been into this for far, far longer than I have that are a lot smarter and a lot better connected. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the well. Star Blazers. So yeah, Dave Merrill definitely used his uh, Anime Hell platform to uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> encourage yeah. whatever anime industry company was listening to license that new series. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. The Star Blazer 2199. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another thing I like, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, his his version of Anime Hell is very different than the one you see at Animazement, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of people, especially in North Carolina, that are used to just the Animazement one. And it's not necessarily like worse, but it is very different. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, that's the one I'm more used to here at AWA. And there's uh, a lot of the older stuff. There. There's a lot of commentary about how things have changed over time. Uh, last year, he had a big spoof about there. He went through like almost a year by year and showed what kind of goofy cartoon or sort of, you know, terrible crossover we got in animation in the West and compared to some other really awesome action stuff that they were creating. 
back in the 60s and 70s in Japan. So to have like a history lesson while you're probably a little intoxicated and laughing at what's going on screen was it's a really interesting like uh you know audiovisual experience that I really enjoy. Does um innovative animation does that include Tezuka's Cleopatra or exclude it? <laughs> well, I mean that you didn't see anything like that in the West. So yes. I guess <laughs> this is this is true. <laughs> um but cool. Um any other thoughts about uh awa that you have no no i really enjoyed it i mean i'll, I'll still be there yeah, year after year probably till the day i die cool i hope i can say the same because yeah. um you know I've, I've been once tori's been a few times but i i would totally love to make this a regular thing i love this con it's, yeah. it's been so great <laughs> i didn't realize how much i missed it until i went back oh. this year after not going for three years yeah or like two years or something right yeah um so I guess let's just go ahead and jump into our review for this time, for this episode. Cool. Um, just a little bit of background on this particular franchise that we're going to be talking about. Um, this series is called Little Witch Academia. We will be reviewing specifically the TV series that came out uh, earlier this year. What Did it start um, late 2016 or did it all start in 2017? <sighs> I want to say it's. Uh, I want to say 2017. Let me quickly. I, I want to say that as well. I just didn't want to be wrong. Jump the Wikipedia. First episode episode debuted January 9th, seventeen. Okay, so right okay. right on that uh, winter premiere um, right. docket. Mm -hmm. um, so the franchise started as an entry in the 2013 Young Animator Training Project, ran right. by the Japanese Animation Creators Association. Um, it, which is an organization to help uh, young animators get their foot in the door uh, with larger production roles and the such in uh, the anime industry. Um, this particular short um, aired alongside um, uh, Death Billiards in the yeah. same um, uh, festival. Uh, Death Billiards, of course, being the uh, precursor to Madhouse's Death Parade, which is another absolutely excellent show that i enjoyed so much uh there are there have only i now i'm i'm not a emotionally cold person by any means i feel a lot of things um but there are very few things in media especially anime i guess that have made me physically cry uh one of those things was anohana and the other one of those things was death parade um, I wish I could say the same because I cry over everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know why that show affected me so much. Maybe if I sat and thought about it a little bit more, I could probably tell you exactly why. But um, love to do an episode on that. But mm -hmm. anyway, I, I digressed from death. Have you seen Death Parade, Tobias? I have not. I, I was aware of Death Billiards back when uh, I was looking more into the anime Mirai stuff a couple years back. And it was on my list. I think I actually got a copy of Death Billiards somewhere. But and I've heard a lot of people talk about Death Parade, so it's been kind of my list, but I'll definitely add that a little higher. Yeah, uh, I think you'd appreciate it for sure. Cool. Um, but uh, Studio Trigger created this uh, single 30-minute OVA uh, that would become the first entry in the Little Witch Academia franchise. And in uh, 2015, there was a extremely successful Kickstarter uh, to release a follow-up film uh, to the short entitled Little Witch Academia The Enchanted Parade. Um, and then that came out and it was released. And at the end of last year's um, Space Patrol Luluco, uh, they teased a TV series of Little Witch Academia in the very last 
uh, scene of the last episode of that show. And then things happened and we got a TV series of Little Witch Academia. And um, I guess fortunately or un I guess fortunately considering it was licensed at all, but unfortunately considering who got it, Netflix got the uh, exclusive rights to um, Little Witch Academia's release of the TV series here in the United States um, and delayed it by several, several months and then released it in two block halves, sort of like they they branded it on the on the on Netflix as two different seasons, even though it right. was just on one season. Um, but they released it in 13 episode chunks with about, I want to say maybe six or eight weeks difference. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe as much as two months. Yeah, um, it was like it was like two or three months. Yeah, something like that between each um, season, quote unquote. Um, and then they after that, uh, after the, um, the series aired. Uh, they announced a video game would be released next month in Japan and sometime next year in the United States. What is the name of the game? Um, Little Witch Academia and Chamber of Time. Chamber of Time. That's Chamber it. Chamber of Time. I remember it was something that sounded cool. Um, it's in, very Harry Potter esque. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, I never picked up on that. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> um, in terms of financial success, at least in Japan, um, the Blu-ray sales for the series peaked in around late July, um, with Volume Four of the Blu-ray selling almost three thousand units, which actually in that month beat out My Hero Academia. That's wild. Oh, nice. That is pretty wild. Um, but unfortunately, it did steadily drop since then to only a few hundred volumes selling around like volume six or seven or something like that. Um, I don't know the current figures on the Blu-ray um, sales. If they are still uh, coming out, they may have all been uh, released by now. Um, stateside, it's kind of hard to tell um, if the series is like financially successful or not because it is only available for streaming on Netflix at this time. Hopefully at some point, uh, we will see a Knights of Sidonia situation where someone, question mark, um, may work out a deal with Netflix to release this show on Blu-ray, and I would absolutely love to buy it. Same. So if anyone out there is listening to this podcast, which we all know that you're not, um, please, please license this show for a home video, and uh, we would love to uh, throw money at you uh, vigorously. <laughs> um Cool. Um, so that's basically the production breakdown of the show. Tori, do you want to tell us what the actual narrative of the show is about? Spoiler free, though. Sure. We'll um, deal with spoilers in a minute, but go ahead. Okay. okay. Just quick and to the point. Um, we have our main character, Akko, who uh, ever since seeing her hero, uh, Shiny Chariot's magic show as a child, um, became obsessed with witches and magic and like wanting to be a witch so she decides a little bit older to go to luna nova academy which is a very famous school for young witches um and she gets there and she's not very good at it um so it follows her journey of like accepting that and her growing as a person and making a bunch of lovely friends essentially that's basically yeah. it yeah it's a very simple premise. Very, very pure story. It's so pure. <laughs> very, very wholesome. Good. Yes. This is a show you can sit down and watch with anyone of any age and 
we don't see that so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It it has a wonderful spirit of uh, just of hope and unironic enjoyment, mm-hmm. which is uh, something I've gravitated a lot towards recently because yeah. I think that's very important. Um, so in terms of the, because um, Tobias, you watched the uh, original Japanese version. Tori and I both watched the uh, English dub. Um, do you want to go through the Japanese uh, voice cast? Because I know you said you had a few little pieces of interest in there. Yeah, so I was looking through them here. I'm not a big voice actor, uh, test kind of person. I don't really follow them too much. I was just seeing a couple uh, voices I re- you know, recognize from, I think, watching earlier series here that I... Occasionally, we'll check out on ANN to see if uh, if I'm correct in recognizing their connection. But I did go through earlier today to see what some of the, the VAs had worked on previously, and there were a couple of interesting little little bits. So the first, the uh, the actress that uh, voiced Latte, or I'm not sure how they pronounce it in the English. Is just Lot? It, they do no, they don't. They don't say Lot. It's a. It's like Lote. Lote, Lote, right? Yeah, uh, so the 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 Seiyu of Fumikori Kasa looking through her uh, catalog, and she's got a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, her primary voices that you would recognize her as doing uh, Rukia from Bleach. Oh, nice. Yeah, and uh, also Sarah's Victoria from Helsing. Nice. She hasn't seen me quite some time. Uh, the yeah, actress... They, they, both, they both wear glasses. They're the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The uh, voice actress for Akko, uh, Megumi Han, I noticed that she's got a, a couple stuff there. Not too much stuck out stuck out to me uh, as, as like a main recognizable uh, deal. But apparently uh, her mother, uh, Keiko Han, had uh, voiced also uh, Lala Soon from the original Mobile Suit Gundam and also Luna the Cat from Sailor Moon. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's uh, a was very that? frequent uh, guest at Animazement. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's done, she's done quite a lot here. So it comes from a, a bit of a history there. And uh, also, you've got the actress for uh, uh, Crow, Croa, or I'm not sure how they would say in English, uh, um, the, the main Croy. villain, Croy. Croy. Okay, Croy. Uh, I see that she actually was the uh, actress for Naruto. <laughs> I, didn't really, I didn't really make the connection until looking through here. So uh, for all of you kids listening to the podcast you know, for the first time, Naruto is Boruto's dad, of course. <laughs> it is a very storied uh, anime history, but no, she did uh, the voice for Naruto all the way from the original up to uh, you know the movie, the new Boruto stuff. I thought it was really interesting to see just little bits of uh, you know a little backstory in some of these voice actresses' catalog. Wow! Yeah, I can't believe you spoiled all of Naruto here in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> um, but it's it's funny, you know, seeing um because with with Japanese seiyu and and English voice actors as well to a degree, there is this um sort of consistent typecasting, and uh, that does happen in live action as well. It's nothing that's unique to voice acting, but it's always unique to see a um a actor break out of that. Um, like the fact that um Kugimiya plays um the one crazy stitches face kid in tokyo ghoul suzuya suzuya um where she is known for being like the sundere queen and is is in like idol master and all the Mm -hmm. sort of very bubbly shows um and she's also i want to say she's also migi 
No, that's that, Aya Hirano. Oh, okay. Well, same exact thing. Yeah. Like Aya Hirano, Haruhi Suzumiya herself is uh, the gross hand in Parasite. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's always so fun. Um, in the, uh, did you have anything else to add? Uh, not insofar as the uh, the voice actress is concerned. Like I said I'm not too big of a huge fan when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like if we're talking about like the show as a whole, I feel like there's a couple scenes you should go back and watch in the Japanese dub. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we are we kind of in spoiler territory? I'm um, not quite. I've got a couple other okay. topics I want to go through uh, real quick before that. Okay. But it, it will well, not... in, in episode 18 specifically, the uh, let's just say uh, Garen Lagan episode. Yeah, uh, I would really go back and go back and watch that in Japanese, especially during the major climactic parts, because like her delivery, uh, Megumi Han's delivery, I, I, I went back and watched the English just for that episode. And I'm not going to say like the, the English did a bad job. I heard they actually got a lot better as the series went on. But that's like they her, her delivery during that part is perfect. It gives me chills every time. OK, well, I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> I'm going to rewatch it in Japanese. Same. If at this point you can work your podcast magic and actually include it, that would be for the best. In terms of the U.S. English voice cast, we've got a lot of uh, um, connections back to the Kill a Kill English dub. Um, Akko is played by Erica Mendez, who is also Ryuko in Kill la Kill. Uh, so she's got two Trigger main characters under her belt. Um, and she plays Gon in Hunter Hunter and Aladdin in Mag- um, Magi, Magi, whatever. Um, Susie is played by Anastasia Munoz, who is Monomi in Danganronpa, the evil, uh, the evil pink bear, not the evil black and white bear. And uh, Latte is... Again, another um, actress plays Latte, who has an extremely large uh, catalog of works. She is Eureka in Eureka 7. Um, this is Stephanie Shea, by the way, who was also a guest at Anime Week in Atlanta. Um, she is Eureka. She is Hinata in Naruto, Mitsuha in Your Name. Uh, she's Sailor Moon, and the list goes on and on. She's been a staple of uh, American dubs for ever and ever and is in many, many things. Uh, Diana is played by Laura Post, who, again, another connection to Kill a Kill. Diana is Ragyo, funny That's enough. That's so wild. Oh. Isn't that weird? And then Professor Ursula, I swore up and down, and I so badly wanted this to be true, that Professor Ursula was played by Allison Keith Ship because she sounds so much like Misato from Evangelion. She sounds so much like her, but unfortunately, I was wrong. Uh, she is played by another uh, excellent actress who, who's this is her only anime role ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did an absolutely fantastic job. I thought she played this character wonderfully. It's Alexis Nichols. Yeah. So if she ends up in other anime projects in the future, which I hope that she does, um, she will do a great job. I loved her I want performance. Them to completely redub the show and cast. Uh, the same voice actress as Sato, because now I can't un- I know, but, she sounds exactly like yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, that is basically the breakdown of the cast. Um, Actually, going back to one other thing I noticed, you mentioned uh, Erica Mendez doing uh, Gone in Hunter x Hunter, mm-hmm. and actually realizing that uh, Megumi Han did that as well, so the oh, wow. both English and Japanese voice actress for uh, Akko, our character Akko, also did Gone. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. 
That's really funny how how stuff like that either works out um, either intentionally or not. It was the same right. way with the uh, Haruhi, Haruhi Suzumiya and Lucky Star dub, mm-hmm. where oh, um, wow. both English and Japanese voice actors voice the same characters. Yep, both wow. Aya Hirano and both mm-hmm. Wendy Lee. Yep. <laughs> The legendary Wendy Lee, Faye Valentine herself. <laughs> um, cool. So I guess we can go ahead and get into the larger topics here. Um, but Tobias, do you want to go through a staff breakdown on who specifically made this wonderful show? Sure, absolutely. So of course we've got Studio Trigger. We know them, but uh, when you sort of consider like what triggers, who Trigger is, I think it's kind of important to go through because it is definitely possible uh, for you to nerd out about the individual animators as it is just the studios and, for instance, the voice actresses here. Uh, so sort of looking through this today, uh, checking out the, the Sakuka blog uh, run by some of the great people that are really into this animation community there. Uh, if you haven't really checked that out, I would highly recommend it. Uh, yeah, got I a have. Patreon yeah, I have them on, on Twitter. They're always posting really awesome stuff. Right, exactly. Uh, going through sort of them, uh, learning a little bit more. So earlier you mentioned, for instance, the uh, Young Animator Training Project, and they've got a little section about that when they break down Little Witch Academia. And it was cool to see they break it down with some of the newcomers. So we've got like Yuto Kaneko and uh, Shue Honda, who you'll see a lot come up in, uh, in trigger discussions and individual scenes and a lot of the uh, Sakuga discussion. And of course, they were sort of trained by, we've got Yoyo Shinare, and uh, Takafumi Hori. Mm-hmm. So the the primary director here, the series director for both uh, the original OVAs and the series is Yoyo Shinari, uh, who's yeah, at this point very much a veteran. Uh, he kind of got his start way back in the uh, the 80s. Uh, we know him as sort of like the mechanical designer for the, uh, the Eva units and Evangelion. But uh, more so than that, he's more of a key, like a key animator. If I recall correctly, he did some of the scenes in the TV ending of End of Ava, the more abstract uh, scenes, if I if I recall correctly. Oh, yeah, probably. I mean, uh, I, the, I probably know him as the, the mechanical designer for this series, which that was really interesting because he's not really a designer so much himself as an animator. Uh, actually, sort of reading over today uh, in episode three of Little Witch, no, in episode two of Little Witch Academia, the part where the statue animates and plucks the little twig out of Akko's head. Mm-hmm. That was animated by his brother, Koyo Shinari. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, so his brother's uh, a bit of an older, uh, sort of his mentor. And Yo co- like, compares his own talent to almost nothing compared to his brother. So to see, uh, you know, for him, he, 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 he's more of an animator, more of a key animator there. Uh, sort of talks about how he's trying to hide his own, you know, you know as he perceives it, a lack of talent with mm-hmm. movement there. Trying to trying to underplay himself as many artists tend to do. Oh, exactly, exactly. A very very Japanese mindset as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, here we have him as the the series director, a role that he's not really familiar with himself uh, through a lot of his career. Not really used to taking on a more high minded role rather than getting down in the dirt and actually, you know, animating these scenes. So yeah, Yoshinari himself here. We've got a uh, newcomer Shuei Honda who is making a name for himself at this point with the series. Uh, Takafumi Hori uh, with uh, Trigger and Gainax for some time there, where the style is becoming a lot more apparent. Uh, Hori also uh, animated a couple, uh, one episode of Steven Universe from I oh, say about, a, yeah, about a year ago here. There was an episode that I brought on as guest animator for. 
there. And of course, you've got a, a smattering of other trigger staff there. Sushio, who did the character design work for Kill a Kill, also a veteran key animator at this point, uh, did a couple scenes here. Uh, Imaishi, the, uh, the, you know, the, the man, the myth, the legend, Hiroyuki Imaishi, uh, who directed Kill a Kill and sort of known uh, infamously for his style, actually only did one storyboard, I believe. And I think some of the key animation for the last episode mm-hmm. for this, uh, the episode he sort of worked on as storyboarding was episode eight, which is the whole one with Susie and going into her mind, which is one of the best episodes, in my opinion, for sure. <laughs> Very enjoyable. Yeah, definitely one of the more fun ones. Mm-hmm. You know, watching um, the final episode, um, and I hadn't looked up the uh, animation um, staff for the for that episode yet, and I just I was watching the the final the final countdown really between uh, Diana Akko and the um, missile monster dragon, <laughs> right. whatever. Um, right. um, and just just watching that, I just I knew that it was Imaishi. His his style is is all over that. Exactly. So yeah, you if you can go through here, and I would highly recommend it. This, the Sakaka blog has the first core uh, 13 episodes sort of outlined where they go through every episode, pointing out particular scenes and who they worked on. I Eventually, I want to get into like the Sakaka fandom and learn more about the individual creators there. It's just mm-hmm. kind of a little over my head at this point. But if you're interested in that at all and to see their individual styles, I would highly recommend it. I read a couple of the articles today just kind of catching up on this, the first three or so. But uh, they do a really good job just sort of outlining and talking about, uh, you know, the actual art of animation in itself. Mm-hmm. Another discussion you see too much in the larger anime fandom nowadays, I don't. Mm-hmm. There was a great article in a, f- a few issues back. So it's been it's been a couple months, maybe earlier this year. Um, a great article in uh, Otaku USA about uh, sort of an introduction to Sakuga and what it is and how you can spot it. Um and I, I found that really fascinating. So it, it's definitely something that is that is underappreciated. And wasn't it was it not Evan Minto? I think that write that. Let me see if I can look that up here because he. Uh, exactly, but you you could be right. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so because he's uh, he works a lot with Trigger. He's become sort of their, you know, as it were, an American liaison. And looking through the article now, yeah, it is Evan Minto. It looks like January of this past year. Gotcha, he wrote an article gotcha. on how you say. So yeah, he's become sort of. Uh, uh, triggers sort of liaison almost. You go through, you spend time with them in Japan, and when they come over here, he hangs out with them a lot, and you know, for anime next and whatnot. And he's done, I think he's actually got a panel he does, the conventions he goes to, where he talks about the process itself, you know, the whole, the key animation, the in between, and all of the technical aspects that one of those things that, you know, growing up and like really liking Disney movies and stuff, I've kind of, I've seen as a kid, but really sort of like looking back and seeing how that works on a professional level on a technical level is really interesting in and of itself definitely because they're, they're i mean it it truly is quite quite impressive when you break it down to its its basic uh parts to see how everything works together to create something just so beautiful to look at when you look at at little witch academia uh, you mentioned earlier about the story how it's it's pretty easy going it's nothing too uh complex I think it's a pretty accurate description for, for the show itself. I think one of the major characters is not one of the actual characters, but the animation itself. In most episodes, you can go through and see little bits that are just that almost stand out, mm-hmm. uh, whether you consider that sort of you know good or bad as far as the animation quality or triggers pacing. 
but I really like that. I like in, in a, you've got an episode on the whole beginning sequence, which is expounded upon from the OVA. In episode two, you've got, you know, uh, you at Ko Yoshinari is seen with a statue, which stands out a little bit too much, in my opinion. But again, it's really well animated. In episode three, with the where you've got the broom and the broom race, uh, mm-hmm. some really awesome scenes there. Really, really fun episode to watch. And going on from there, just this scene after scene that are just, uh, you know, little bits of art that uh, it's kind of amazing <laughs> in their own right. It is. Um, and you mentioned the the pacing of the show. I, I see this as something that, at least in my view, would be extraordinary, extraordinarily successful on uh, like U.S television on like a children on like a kids cartoon network um because every episode is very um self-contained um which is what most western cartoons sort of try to do um to where you can sit down and just watch an episode and be entertained and have to follow this you know long sprawling narrative as as many anime tends to to be um, by nature um so it would be interesting to see um if this show would ever end up on tv to see if it would be successful with like a a child audience and uh, i know that it is definitely accessible on netflix and a lot of kids do do use netflix i just wonder what i I wonder if this will break into that market and be something that is accessible to um accessible appreciated and enjoyed um, by a younger not necessarily neck deep in anime right when I showed the like the original little movies to my sisters, they enjoyed them very, very much, and they're very much in that young, especially the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, she really enjoyed it. Like she was wanting to watch it again immediately after it ended. And I was like, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> hey, so, that was that was me too. Yeah. So <laughs> I haven't shown them the TV series yet, but I feel like if I were to sit down or even just to you know get them to watch it, that it would be the same thing. Mm-hmm. They very much would find it enjoyable like i could see it being very successful amongst the younger crowd mm-hmm. and i certainly hope that it that it, it becomes that mm-hmm. um because sure. it has a lot of um it has a lot of major themes in it um that are sort of in the very in the very disney vein of mm-hmm. being um very uh, accessible and enjoyable for an adult audience while also you know giving kids uh something that they can find fun and entertaining as Absolutely. well sort of very family style of um of art um and narrative storytelling but still being like a well-told narrative mm-hmm. that is not you know trite or pandery to a, a younger audience or anything mm-hmm. like that yeah, for sure so there were there were a lot of things in the show that i thought were uh really interesting nods to not necessarily overt social commentary but acknowledging um, a few societal woes that we do, in fact, deal with in our uh, in in IRL, um, and the show uh, played with those in a very interesting way. I thought, um, including some like political turmoil yeah. and uh, stuff like that that I just really did not expect from what I had seen before. Um, the whole um, interesting side story with uh, probably our most prominent uh side side character with uh with andrew and his politician uh, father i found all of that to be uh, very interesting seeing mm-hmm. their character arc go from uh you know sort of this domineering style of um 
like this this father that has these expectations for his son to carry on the family business and things like that. You know, it's a story that's been told before, but it was it was neat to see that and to see Andrew's character, you know, grow um, in that and really form a a non romantic uh, friendship with um, with Akko and yeah. with the other characters I, as well. I was sweating there for a minute because I was really scared that they were. Gonna- in some like unrealistic romance just for the sake of it and even um and just a tangent for a moment but even that one episode um with the bee <laughs> oh yeah, yeah really fall in love with each yes. other even the even the one um his friend that realized he kind of liked lote mm-hmm. it was yeah. still kind of like a she was like let's be friends first because that's what makes sense and i'm just like bless you for this because, yes like, <laughs> not done that and i'm glad this is the way we went me too yeah me too and it had a lot of interesting uh commentary on uh sort of social media to a great degree and our reliance on technology Mm -hmm. absolutely Um, croy i thought was a very interesting character Mm -hmm. uh not only as sort of a villainous force but as sort of like the alternative version of um of magic as an ideology i suppose where she was very focused on sort of you know what can what is the um utilitarian like point of technology and things like that sort of removing her you know personal human uh emotion for it and not valuing that as much as something um more rooted in magic because i i saw it as they're setting up these two dynamics of like croy's approach is very much of the um the technical the the uh clinical the um the mind rather than the heart mm-hmm. and that the the magic elements of the show were the heart and um uh her you know relearning that and learning why she came to feel that way through um through her backstory with uh with chariot uh, i thought was a great a great uh character arc for her and a Absolutely. great um set of um um, ideas that they brought to the table on that. Sure. And you've got the, the entire introduction to the second season where you've got the entire fairy uprising. Yes. Which is, which is yes. again, another great episode. One of my favorites. And you, you see this thing, you know, this whole techno magic portrayed as just being very practical and very, I mean, of course, you know, she's the, she's the main antagonist, the main villain. So obviously it's going to backfire in the end, but to see it portrayed and to see how, they sort of adapt to, you know, you're know, going to adapt to these millennials, these millennials that are killing magic, you know, <laughs> add, them, add them to the, add them to the kill list of all the other things millennials are killing nowadays. Kill the kill list. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got like sort of comparison there where she's bringing this, it's just this new updated technology, these iPhones and stuff that, that are great uh, compared to the old ways of doing things, which obviously aren't really working. We see in the first season, the first season where just issue after issue keeps happening. Uh, yeah, it was very interesting to see uh, to see that uh, to see that come up into the series in the, in the second season. Mm. And it was neat. To, so they explored it in not a, not a black and white sort of way. It, it definitely acknowledged like the the pitfalls of like the the magical the magic only approach. And um, so the show wasn't giving you this sort of ideology of like um, you know everything old is bad and we have to change things. It it did some of that a little bit, but it was also an, a fine balance of, well, you have to take the elements of what are good about the old ways of doing things, which, um, and the, the new ideas as well. Um, and that plays out um, in the way that the teachers and the students interact with each other. 
um, because there are many moments where the teachers are, you know, girls, we have to do things this way. And then the girls end up through mostly shenanigans and messing up a lot, coming up with a new and interesting way of doing whatever task needs to be done. And uh, I think that that is a good, a good, um, good positive uh, practical message to send. Sure. And as a different thing there, back when the series was still airing, uh, it was floated to me by another friend of mine that the entire old ways versus the new way uh, theme also sort of explains the animation industry in Japan currently. I was thinking about that. I was yeah. thinking if they were trying to say something about that and, and undoubtedly they, they were. Yeah, there's, there's definitely like uh, triggers that were routed or rooted rather in uh, this old style of doing things, the old animation and coming from this long line of veterans. But then you've got a lot of these studios now that are moving over into these the whole 3D CG stuff, which if we're being honest, Japan hasn't really learned how to do well. There's very not few CG that, stuff that. that, I mean, there, there's a couple things, but, you know, when you look at, for instance, like Berserk, uh, the new Berserk and a few other things that, like the the whole frame rate and everything just doesn't quite match and it's just not as really even as advanced as it is in like american animation and even then it's not amazing when you consider like the whole lifeless look a lot of this new this new cg stuff and you compare it to the the great flowing animation that we see in the in the the whole sakega scenes and in in little witch academia and then the other trigger works there's I, i feel like yeah there's definitely a little bit of commentary there and even if you don't really feel like the it follows the theme throughout the ending maybe there's you know a happy marriage at the end between the the old and new ways of animation that mm-hmm. they're sort of seeing i still feel like it's a little bit of commentary on trigger as artist itself definitely and it's funny to think about that dynamic too because you know at one point you know trigger they were the the young up and coming underdogs within their own little uh you know gynax world um, and they sort of changed the way Gynax was perceived and made art uh, for a long time before they decided to go off into their new thing. And now they're sort of uh, not necessarily changing roles, but sort of becoming you know, more tie- tied to the art, not necessarily tied to trends or anything like that. And sure. I, and- I think that that's a good mark of, um, of artistic uh, integrity. Um, like they basically do what they want, regardless of what will sell or what will be popular or what people are doing nowadays. It's it's all about, uh, it seems for them, it, it's all about, you know, telling a good story with really beautiful animation. For sure. Absolutely. And he mentions of his evolution at this point with, with Trigger, you definitely see that. You've got Yoshinari, this guy that's usually a key animator directing the series. You've got Imaishi, again, he's directing Promare here shortly, but mostly hands off on this. And honestly, I think the series really benefits from Lola's Imaishi. Uh, his style really wouldn't fit this, this, you know, the more subtle aspects of this series as it would the bombastic Kill a Kill or even Gurren Lagann. So to see some of the veteran people take a little bit of a hands off role uh, and let the newer people, the newer animators come into their own and develop their own skills. So I mentioned Shuhei Honda, and he's one of the uh, the animators that was really involved in the original anime Mirai OVA, mm-hmm. becoming a you know coming into his own as it is. Because looking at his entry on A and M, I certainly worked on a whole bunch of stuff besides the besides the new Trigger stuff, and he's been getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention, uh, in, in in part because of a lot of uh, sorry, in part because of this. So I feel like he's going to be a name we're going to see a lot more of in the next couple of works there. I think he worked on Kiznaiver as well. Did some animation for Kiznaiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been getting a little bit of love. 
So we'll see. Uh, I feel like at this point in the age when you've got, for instance, you know, Anna with Kara sort of moving on and letting uh, some of the younger people sort of come into play with Trigger, you've got uh, these newer names coming into uh, and, and, you know, the arena. You've got uh, Akira Amamiya and uh, Shigeru Kayama sort of becoming sort of the heads of these studios, letting, you know, sort of replacing Imaishi to a degree. I feel like we're going to point not unlike the situation with Jewish Ghibli leaving this vacuum mm-hmm. with, uh, with Miyazaki sort of going away or maybe coming back or maybe going away. We can't really tell story of his entire seeing, career. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we're seeing a lot of people that are, could, could fill this, this vacuum of new talent mm-hmm. and Japan hasn't really had a whole lot of, I feel like they haven't really uh, developed a new generation as well as they probably should have. So this is why you've got some of the stuff like the Anime Mirai project where they're trying to push these new people into to better roles and to pushing themselves a little bit further because the industry really hasn't quite done that as well as it probably should have. Right. And I think that's one of the one of the big things that, you know, people tend to put Studio Trigger on a really high pedestal with the uh with the very pervasive uh Studio Trigger saved anime memes back right. with uh, Kill a Kill and mm-hmm. you know extending somewhat ironically into Ninja Slayer and things like that. Um right. but they they really are sort of um not forgetting where they came from and they they are bringing in these these new young animators to be the talent of the future and to make sure that uh, the young um, the young folks are are taken care of and nurtured in the way that they can carry the medium into the future and that's that's really um, important and really responsible on their part so you know hats off to them exactly. they, they they deserve their they've earned their pedestal I, I would say <laughs> I think so too back a little bit more to the uh the narrative uh of of the show um i thought one of the things that this show did and tori you can elaborate on it a little bit more is they they portrayed female friendships in a Mm -hmm. really honest and nuanced way yes like not everybody was always cool with each other but not Mm -hmm. everybody was always like the clear you know a uh, good kid underdog slash bully mm-hmm. character. So what did you, what was your takeaway from that? Um, I mean, I thought it was a, for a fictional show, a pretty realistic, like, expectation and portrayal of, like, what you would see, like, amongst kids that age. Like, um, and just comparing it to other things that I'm thinking of, for instance, like, I don't know, K-On or something. Like, everything was sunshine and rainbows with, you know, them. Mm-hmm. But here you would see, you know, characters going through a hard time um, and everybody coming together to support them and uplift them. Or you would have, um, you know, certain characters always picking fights, like Amanda, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they would come back together and, like, her picking on Akko wasn't necessarily like a malicious thing it was kind of almost to me it came across as like whether they intended it for it to be or not like her kind of pushing Akko to do better definitely yeah um and I I mean that was something I picked up on I think that was the race episode Mm -hmm. um and even even Diana the rival of Akko like Diana was never like mean really to Akko and you see that in a lot of media 
like you know the rival like popular girl of the school is always like a complete and total like jerk to the less popular girl or character or something like that but you know diana was just like now i expect better of you i know you can do better Mm -hmm. but was still very still kind of um what's the word i'm looking for abrasive yes Mm -hmm. yes she was still you know pushing Mm -hmm. for something better from but was still a little bit abrasive Mm -hmm. um just seeing all of them come together and be there for each other in a realistic way um even when Akka was the one to usually cause the problem (laughs) (laughs) um they were always there to bail their friend out and um never let her feel like she was by herself right and i think that's that is another really big message of the show is like Mm -hmm. teamwork makes the dream work yeah or (laughs) yeah team teamwork is magical or or what was the gurren log online that they used was it um i wrote it down hold on it was uh believing in yourself is your magic yeah yeah Uh, that's that's the thesis of the show i mean and and that's that's a great that's a great thesis i love it yeah and i i love how they pushed the whole you know um you can achieve anything if you work hard enough for it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, Akka was getting everything handed to her. Even even Diana. Like, Diana had to work really hard for, you know, where she was. Right, right. Um, and you find that out later on that, you know, even though she comes from a prestigious background, everything wasn't, she right. wasn't good from the start, mm-hmm. basically. Right, right. The same same thing with, uh, with Andrew as well. Like, they're mm-hmm. both, like, extraordinarily privileged people. Mm-hmm. Um, with a lot of power and influence, but they still have personal, parental, societal things that they have to overcome to yeah. sort of, you know, be be decent in this world. Um, and I think that that was that was really good. And it was very humanizing. Yeah. Like it wasn't um, like it sort of the cast was structured in very like a mean girls kind of way, <laughs> yeah. but none of them ever fell into that trope. Yeah. yeah. I think that- the scene at the end where Diana and Akko come together to do that like final like powerful attack. Um, I mean, you know, that's a trope you see a lot where you know you come together with your mm-hmm. rival to overcome, but just like the way they built that up and um delivered that at the end just made me so like I was like, Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was so so good to see. Um and mildly off topic, I have to say that I love the diversity of the characters. Oh, like, yeah. Yes, everybody has such a different For sure. Look. For sure. They're not, For sure. Yes, they're not afraid to make their characters look like unconventional. Mm-hmm. And um, it just it made me so happy to see so many just like types of people, um, especially, you know, young girls mm-hmm. um represented in such different ways because i feel like it's a show where you can sit down and be like i kind of look like that character that's cool mm-hmm. and you know go from there so that, that made me really happy to see mm-hmm. so. yeah there's no like uh kyoani same face syndrome yes or yeah. um that that's typically used to describe disney characters but this mm-hmm. is an anime podcast so eh. <laughs> <laughs> and i really liked how not just on like a a you know a skin deep level uh, you see the diversity, but also they really sort of dug into their actual cultural as well. So yeah. in the first episode with Latte, she drops some like, I think it's like Swedish candy, which I wouldn't have noticed at all. But knowing that she is and I'm probably not Swedish. Let me look that up right quick. 
mixing my uh, nationalities there. <laughs> uh, Finland, Finland, yes, Finland. She she drops like some Finnish candy, and if I wasn't really aware of it at my at my at first, but somebody pointed it out, and yeah, like it's an actual, it's there. And seeing the stuff that like Akko drops in the first episode, I think it's the little like uh, like salt container or something, very similar to that. Uh, somebody pointed out that Susie, like uh, her last name, uh, Mambarang, which I said right here, is uh, is she's actually Filipino, and her last name is just the word for witch, Mambaravan. Yeah, and uh, you know, I it's not something that the really series like really had to point out, but little things like that. And with that episode, we've got the individual character episodes, like when Latte goes to see her folk, her folks. It's definitely a little different than the standard British town that we've been seeing, uh, you know, Luna Nova. The series specifically points out Akko as being Japanese as opposed to everybody else. Mm-hmm. They're just being like everyone else. That was a really interesting callback. You've, of course, got in episode three, the, 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 the whole race commentator, uh, Kenyan, Kenyan race commentator, which is really just amazing, cute character. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, you know, little things like that to to maybe a, a wide un uncultured swine audience like myself and <laughs> others perhaps um, would not pick up on those things. But for those um, things for for the for the people that would pick up on that, I can only imagine how delightful that would be uh, for someone to see that and be like, oh man, that they really paid attention and you know added these little elements of world building to add a large um layer of credibility to the to the um world that they built somewhat unrelated but um since um i did not watch the series until it was all released in japan and then subsequently released in netflix i thought that the uh chumley pawn stars character <laughs> was um i thought it was going to be like a background character situation Same. and then he ended up being like a semi-active character in multiple yeah. <laughs> and i'm like this this uh caricature of chumley is um so much more pleasant and <laughs> the actual version of the man himself another really cool thing i like about trigger that they're really into like the western influence and a lot of these western uh like jokes and whatnot that you won't see a whole lot in anime so you got them for instance but did you also catch the names of uh of diana's little henchmen Oh boy, I feel like I did, but maybe I just didn't. I didn't note it down. But what what were they? Her henchmen are named Hannah and Barbara. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, totally, totally a reference to you know Hannah Barbera. So it's little oh. things like that that kind of signal to like the animator nerds, these anime nerds that the, 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 there's there's a lot of Western love there as well. Oh, that's incredible. I, you know, I was reading, I was reading through the cast list earlier on the characters, but I didn't read those two characters side by side. So that didn't even, but nice catch. That's funny. And, uh, I mentioned it in the panel I give, but also there's a lot of, uh, other references in Enchanted Parade and a few other things as well, where you've got, uh, uh, you got the main characters from Gravity Falls. Yes. uh, Make appearances in Enchanted Parade. And not only that, but uh, the creators of Steven Universe, both Rebecca Sugar and Jones Cordy, make appearances in the Enchanted Parade. And I think they're also slightly present in uh, episode three, the again, the Broom Race episode. You see them, I think, on the plane in a very, very quick scene, but they just kind of show up there. And again, to see a lot of love between these Western animators and, and, and Eastern is, is something, something you don't really see a lot in anime, at least when it, 
you know, during the time where I was sort of growing up myself over the past 10 years and really getting into the fandom, you had this trope, this meme of the Japanese don't care about Western fans. And there's very much a divide between us and them mm-hmm. insofar as what's important. But to see that that trope broken down very recently uh, in ways such as this, uh, again, it's really neat to see this cross-cultural uh, you know, pollination. Definitely. It's sort of uh, an example of treating animation as a, as a global uh, global art form mm-hmm. um, where everybody's sort of uh, in it together, um, which is very, very cool. I do also want to bring out, uh, you mentioned this, this idea of female friendship and how Diana plays off Akko and they sort of play off each other throughout. And then maybe think of uh, a very common trope in Gainax and Trigger Works, the idea of hardworking guts versus this uh, sheer skill skill set, yes, mm-hmm. which is also prevalent in a bunch of other shonen works in general. But it made me think of also you got a uh, uh, Noriko and uh, her senpai and uh, Gunbuster, yes, and the analog and the sequel Die Buster, where you got this you know head over hills, just uh, talentless like buffoon, this this goofy character. This, uh, that tries really, really hard to, 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 to actually be a successful, you know, whether it's a mecha pilot or a witch in this case, mm-hmm. versus this, this senpai that's uh, incredibly talented, makes it seem like it comes very naturally, is very easy, a little aloof at times, but doesn't really play off as being kind of a, a jerk character in reality. Mm-hmm. So we've got a... It's funny you mentioned Gunbuster because Noriko's friend does look almost identical to like an 80s version of Lotte. Yeah, exactly. And I, mentioned and I can't remember the name of her senpai in Gunbuster. What was it? Oh, uh, Noriko. Um, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Uh, Amano. Amano. Amano, yes. Yeah, Amano. Yes. Amano. Yes. Yeah, Amano. Yeah, so again, and like her, like you see is very kind of an aloof character, but she doesn't partake in the entire bullying that happens in Gunbuster. And while she seems a little more aloof and kind of spiteful to Noriko, at least a little bit in the first episode, uh, she kind of comes into her and sees her as a uh, a compatriot. And right. we, we see this in Little Witch Academia, where Diana doesn't really hate Akko, but she can tell she comes from a very different culture. And it's not until you know the second season and her big arc about midway, I think midway to half near the end, where we start seeing... Uh, sort of her as a character begin to uh you know at this point begin to be, be a little humanized i guess is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. to see her her issues her at home and to see how Akko sort of tries to butt in with the whole hardworking guts atmosphere and try to you know forcibly solve diana's issue for her as a friend mm-hmm. and to see how they sort of come together through that mm-hmm. and that that dynamic also plays out and you know as you said many many things but also in in kill a kill for example um, although uh, Satsuki was sort of um, a little bit more, I guess, disingenuous because she had other plans in mind throughout the whole time, um, but still the the dynamic still stands. Um, but um, I guess moving forward towards more of a meta discussion on this show, um, do you think... Uh, and you guys is, can have uh, different opinions on this, and I, I guess some of this may uh, be left to be seen, but um, do you think that the way that this show was released in the United States impacted its ability to build an uh, build a um, an audience? You can, you can go first, uh, Tobias. Okay. Uh, well, like we mentioned earlier, I feel like being on Netflix, 
uh, was probably going to be able to hit uh, like the, the intended age group a little better. Uh, where so you've got uh, a lot of the kids just kind of mindlessly turning on Netflix, the kids channel and just sort of watching that way. Uh, my, my, uh, yeah, <laughs> have my old roommate actually started introducing the show to his his young son, uh, about seven or eight, I believe. Oh, and great. He, he, he's watched a little bit of anime like he showed his son Gurren Lagann. Uh, he's a little you know mentally more mature, so he can accept that a little better than mm-hmm. you'd imagine. But uh, th- I think they just actually finished Little Witch Academia a couple of weeks back and he had really good things to he really enjoyed it. Uh, as that as a whole, I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I can't really say myself what children use to the media nowadays. I would assume it's mostly just turning on Netflix and seeing what comes on. I don't even know who uses cable TV anymore. So we've got, I mean, I don't see that being an option per se. I think the only cable TV station that would pick it up would be Adult Swim. But on the other hand, that's not really something you like and used to introduce to a child. And I think Little Witch Academia is a little more uh, subtle and, you know, more uh, in this case, a little more low energy than what you would expect from something on uh, like Toonami or Adult Swim or that late, late hour. So I'm really not sure. It doesn't really fit there. It doesn't really fit their MO. Yeah. And I'm not really sure. I don't really know what what sort of like midday programming block is doing anime nowadays. Uh, I don't know if Cartoon Network's that mostly they're working on their own original stuff now. So I don't know if they don't really, I guess to say we don't really have this, the equivalent to a Pokemon, you know, in this decade or Dragon Ball Z. I'm not sure if Disney XD is even doing anime really. So I, I, I'm really not sure how it'd be reaching children. Not to say I, I hope it doesn't. I certainly hope it does because this is a great series to do that. It's one of those series that I feel like. Hmm? I was going to say since Netflix sort of makes their service very accessible to a, to that child audience, I don't think that they would want to you know, jeopardize their, you know, usage in any way by, you know, sort of, I guess, lending this show out to cable networks because they may not get the returns on it. And they could just use their own service anyway, because clearly they're already, you know, thinking about that market. Um, right. I just I just hope that in in whatever way that it's consumed, because it, it doesn't really matter how how people watch it. I just hope that, and you know, I see in my adult mind that this would be something that kids could get a lot out of. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Uh, like you've we've been saying, it's a it's a pretty great show uh, altogether. Insofar as the actual the the whole release cycle with Netflix, I mean, I gotta say it probably hurt there. Uh, it really stifled the fandom more so than the not. I think. Mm-hmm. I think you've got people like me that are already aware of it, or already really hyped for it to come out. And to see that they were going to be postponing it for several months was honestly kind of a letdown. Mm-hmm. And like people like me that we've been doing this for a while, you know, we were back, remember back when Crunchyroll was a place where the streams weren't exactly legal or legit. Right. We are not going to wait for that. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't wait for it to come on on Netflix. I saw right. no really reason to. And myself, uh, you know, with a show like that, I've gotten this mentality where if I'm really into a show like that or Kill a Kill, I've got to see it every week. I really need to want, I want to be, you know, up on the, 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 the I got to be on the trending hashtag on Twitter and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. Like, I really want to keep up with the, the, the quote unquote discourse mm-hmm. for those. So that's part of the experience, I feel like. Yeah, and that's one of the things that at least at the time, I know this is a couple of years ago at this point, but that's kind of what propelled Kill a Kill into its at least fandom mm-hmm. success. Exactly. Because it had that, you know, week to week continued, uh, you know, proverbial hype train that people, yes. you know, were, were riding into the into the night. 
yeah. uh, every single week. And um, I think a little bit because this show did not have an easily accessible um, portal for anime fans to consume it in a way that we are now used to, i.e. Crunchyroll, Funimation, etc. Um, it it definitely hurt it a little bit in terms of, um, I guess, maybe just general exposure. Yeah. You mentioned Kill the Co and exactly what I was, I was thinking about because when Kill the Co came out, we watched it week to week on Crunchyroll. Mm-hmm. I paid for the subscription. We watched it and it was a great time. We, we got really excited about it. Uh, I mean, it, it was great. I don't, I don't really realize. I mean, I do realize why they didn't do it because I've sort of read about Netflix's model, but right. it really kind of hurt the older fan hype surrounding it. And I feel like initially, that's kind of what they, you know, like pretty much like you said, like that's kind of what we've come to expect as a simulcast experience week to week, just like watching Game of Thrones, just like watching Walking Dead or any number of whatever the new hotness is every season. We come to sort of want to be part of that collective viewing experience every week. Right. And um, a lot of these streaming services sort of they, they need to come to the realization that, you know, occasionally there are things that an audience is going to be more suited to want to binge watch. And there are going to be some things that people are going to want to value the experience of watching weekly. And um, I think that that's definitely something that they should at least consider um, because those are important uh, aspects of the way that we watch things. Um, Because, you know, watching things either... I mean, to a degree, either by yourself or with a group are still communal experiences because more people often than not do discuss the things that they watch with others. And uh, it is more, I I find it to be more enriching whenever, you know, a large amount of people are all watching like the same thing at the same time and you can always, you can all talk to each other about it. Um, I'm very, me personally, I'm very 50-50 and you guys actually hit on a lot of the things that I was going to say anyway, so thanks. But, um, Sorry. No, it's okay. But um, Netflix, as most of us know, um, especially with their own original shows, are very notorious for batch releasing. So, like, okay. you know, they put everything out at one time. There are some shows um, which I prefer that for because, especially if it's a drama, like I, I really mm. want to know what's happening. I'm a very impatient person. Exactly. Yeah. But um, with American shows, I don't really, or just like live action, like um, non-anime, let's let's say that, because I do watch some foreign live action TV shows. I don't care as much for the fandom of those. I like to just sit down and watch The Walking Dead in peace and like not get into the discourse. But with <laughs> anime, like you said, Tobias, I really like to be able to watch that week to week and participate online with people about like how they feel and what's going on um but like netflix needs to kind of get it together with the anime stuff because most of us digest new shows on a week to week basis because we keep up with them weekly as they air in japan Mm -hmm. and um Another show, for instance, uh, Kakagururi, we're not even getting that until like next year, even though it's practically mm-hmm. almost done. Right. Yeah. So, and we are getting Fate, uh, Fate Apocrypha in like a month. Yeah. And it's already been out for almost for an entire season already. Yeah. So, and then it pushes it pushes us to have to seek out those illegal means to watch these shows because there's no other way to do it and still feel like you're a relevant part of the community that you enjoy being. Exactly. 
And these are all definitely things to keep note of. I mean, the Netflix model does definitely work for some things, but they just mm-hmm. need to make sure to listen to the audience that they're trying to obtain. Yeah. But, um, and the thing is too, um, for some anime, I feel like it does work sometimes because, you know, believe it or not, there are people there that don't regularly keep up with anime or watch things right. every week. And they happen to be scrolling and they're like, oh, this looks interesting. Mm-hmm. And they can just binge watch it at their convenience instead mm-hmm. of being like us and being, you know, completely impatient every week when the show ends on a cliffhanger and you're like, I need to know what happened now. <laughs> and I think that's the biggest maybe pro of it mm-hmm. being a Netflix exclusive is that it is in fact available to a large audience mm-hmm. on a large platform. Yeah. You don't have to go to Crunchyroll specifically mm-hmm. buy a subscription for anime to consume the show. Fans. So I think that in the long run, this will gain more fans maybe, mm-hmm. but right. in the short term for, for specifically anime fans, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't what I would prefer. Yeah. And um, a lot of the more, casual anime fans that i've interacted with um rely solely on netflix for their anime because they don't watch it enough to justify having like you know four separate streaming subscriptions right. to be able to watch you know most anything now mm-hmm. so um so but it's pro for them i guess mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah you mentioned like as far as like you know us the the hardcore fans that just have to keep up uh, that's where I mean we're not really Netflix's core demographic there. Right. We're there for the people that, like you said, aren't really so much into anime specifically. They just they want something to binge watch. It's there, looks cute, and enjoy it that way. So I kind of like maybe we can compare it there to even HBO and Game of Thrones, where yeah. you've got a lot of people watching this show, not necessarily paying for HBO Go, but still watching it. And I feel like you know HBO really hasn't, not to say they haven't been cracking down so much. But it's still, what, six, six years into the show and people are still watching the show, you know, via various methods. So I kind of wonder then if HBO is worrying more about, you know, the merchandising arm of their stuff, selling Blu-rays to the hardcore fans, selling the, you know, the bunch of merchandise and all the kind of paraphernalia you can get, I'm sure, at Hot Topic and all sort of other situations. So maybe we'll see that here with Little Witch where... Sure, we've got us that feel a little stifled by it, but watched it anyway. And now that that's been that's been over and done with, if I want to watch it, if I'm at work or somewhere else, I'll just turn it on Netflix, put it on my preferred dub, whether it's the Japanese, English, or you know Portuguese dub, and <laughs> you know, and and watch it that way and explore it again. And because I definitely have gone back and, and watched it, so insofar as you know Netflix getting the numbers, they've definitely got the numbers for me. Oh, but God. yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least run it to, uh, you know, to get their numbers up. Yeah. So, yeah, you're probably right. Like, it feels like from us as hardcore fans, it, 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 it sucks, to be honest. But we're not really Netflix's core demographic in this method. So we'll see in maybe a year or two. You mentioned uh, Kakiguri, uh, for instance, and a few other shows I know they've gotten. And they're not really simul, simul dubbing, simul casting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see in a couple of uh, years if they decide to change that or if they keep going with the method they've currently got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it is something remain to be seen because they are using the week-by-week release model in Japan specifically for yes. these shows, such as Kakegururi. So we'll see if that makes itself stateside at some point. Um, I guess that might have to do with Netflix's dubbing schedule because I know that they don't yes. want to put up their own 
um, material, uh, their own exclusives up without an English dub. That's fair. So yes. they might just exactly. have to get good and get like Funimation and get like that. Where it comes out two to th- the same day. That like two to three week turnaround, which is super quick. And I think what's interesting when you mentioned like licensing and stuff, but just this past week, you asked, uh, you, know, uh, you asked Justin Zavakis with Answer Man about the high dive situation with Sentai licensing their stuff out. So to turn that around here, it's interesting to see like uh, Netflix confront that sort of money in this market. They think they can sort of come into very much like Amazon doing with Anime Strike and kind of at least in our eyes kind of fumble the ball as it were. It'll be interesting to see like with the money holding up Will they change their method to sort of to you know to, to to work around us, or will it be something maybe where they'll do simulcasting rights to Crunchyroll while picking it up on their own side? I believe they've a couple of shows they've got currently that uh, at least at one point used to be on Crunchyroll mm-hmm. or other streaming sites, and maybe pick it up for you know a a larger dub later, possibly even with a uh, you know distribution of physical media mm-hmm. uh, with Blu-ray and whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see maybe in a couple of years when they've got a couple of series under their belt. To see how that evolves into a hopefully more refined market, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's interesting to see. Um, just as a, a weird anecdote, the uh, the odd um, the odd hot potato that is Cabinary of the Iron Fortress. <laughs> yes, that started out as a Amazon exclusive that was tossed over to Crunchyroll for their theatrical release, and has been tossed over to Funimation for the home video and dub release. So it's it's been anime's hottest potato. That's true. <laughs> Is, is that actually on anything besides Amazon now? Uh, right now, as it currently stands, no. But Funimation will be releasing it on home video right. at some point. They have yeah. they announced that I think um, New York Comic Con. They announced again that they would be putting it out, and they said sometime. Well, sometime. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that is that is really interesting. Um. Final, final topic, because we are running pretty long on this episode, but I think that's okay, because Little Witch is worth it. Um, I I was wondering whenever this series started, because I had seen the previews of it and sort of knew what direction they were going with. Like, this wasn't intended to be a sequel, necessarily, to uh, The Enchanted Parade, and it wasn't necessarily going to be a pure prequel, either, to the original OVA. Um, how do you think in you guys' personal thoughts, um, how like a new fan should approach this? Should they just watch everything in release order? Would you encourage them just to watch the new series and watch the old stuff if they are simply curious or what are your general thoughts on that? Um, me personally, I would, depending on how they feel about this genre of show, um, I would be like, hey, you know, if you're not sure you're going to like this, which if you don't, you're wrong, um, <laughs> check out the little movies first mm-hmm. so you can get a, you know, kind of feel of what they're going for. Because mm-hmm. I think the feeling of the short films carries over very well into the TV series. Yeah, generally, so, I think, yeah. Yeah, because for a lot of people, um, 26 episodes for a show is kind of a big commitment, mm-hmm. especially yeah. if you're a busy person. So, you know, watching two short films um, as opposed to committing to an almost 30 episode show, I yes. think is kind of a good entryway. And if you really. There you go. You should totally watch it. So, what do you think, Reverend? Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, I think that uh, the TV series is a little more like it takes it slower. There's a lot more character development overall. So, if you got someone that 
that's really important. If you've got someone that really wants a new show to watch on Netflix, that they need to sit down on the couch and binge watch something, of course, you've got the TV show would probably be the better bet. But I feel like the OVAs are honestly uh, better visually, in the very least, uh, to sort of go back to the animation technical aspects. I feel like since they're so, since they're so relatively short, you're able to get a lot of talent packed in and a lot of really awesome, just awesome animation throughout. The first one is just start to finish, just a, a pleasant experience completely. And the show's not uh, like bad in that regard, but there's a lot of points where there's a lot of background, just this like still frames. Uh, there's a couple of really standout scenes that I mentioned. Uh, it, it can be a little bit longer. So if you got someone that cares more about the narrative aspect and they, you know, the, the, the more, the more, the more literary narrative aspects of anime that the TV series is probably a better watch, but I still think everyone should watch the, the OVAs. Uh, there's again, awesome visually. Uh, I actually paid for the second one. I backed it. I did it. It was me. <laughs> I, you, you can thank me for that. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, again, like uh, the, the second movie in Shannon Parade is just fantastic. You've got these new characters that are introduced. They're, they're not incredibly fleshed out, but they're given enough little character. They get little glimpses. The entire like the, the entire like main segment, the, the whole last act is just uh, it's so great. The action just flows so well and it's, it's just amazing. So yeah, if you're if you're anybody on the fence, I would say at least check out the OVAs for sure. They're definitely just a pleasant experience, even if they stand on their own. But uh, if you're if you're still kind of interested, you still like the idea of anime Harry Potter, and want to see it done better than uh, J.K. Rowling could have done, then yes, check out the TV series. Absolutely, um, we're gonna get a lot of angry emails. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, angry or happy, just send us no, emails. That's fine. <laughs> um. It is of my personal opinion that every single anime fan or anyone who has ever even heard the word anime or going back to the word Japanimation in the old days <laughs> should sit down and at least watch the original 2013 OVA episode um, multiple, multiple times, I believe, um, yes. because that that in of itself is a absolute true delight. Um, one of my favorite anime experiences ever is just that one little short OVA. Um, and then after you have, you know, done your task, um, I, I just say watch it in release order. It's just, yeah. just easy, simple, straight to yeah. the point. Um, just watch it as we did, and then you will never feel like you missed something. Um, yeah. and, it's, and it's not like you're, you know watching uh, one piece or or jojo or something like that is is a fairly fairly light commitment um maybe not necessarily for those who want to watch something like movie length but it's, it's still it's doable yeah yeah i mean the very least the ovs give you an idea of what you're getting into i mean again anime harry potter so if yeah. that's not really your thing then you at least have seen the ovas you at least were able to you know, relish the visual feasts that you've just partaken in. Mm -hmm. And if you're not really into the idea, I mean, that's fine. You don't got to watch it. I would still recommend watching uh, episode eight, the Susie episode. Mm -hmm. uh, the first the first part of uh, the second core, I think, of 14, the fairy uprising. Yes, uh, I think that should be taught in economics classes. <laughs> and episode 18, especially if you're a mega fan, that, that I, I still just go back and I actually, before the podcast started today, I went back and just watched the whole mega segment. It's just <laughs> kind of amazing. And if you're a fan of uh, older Mecha stuff at all, like this cross-pollination between the series that's not really uh, ingrained in that with the one little bit that we've got with Constance, 
uh, kind of amazing. So there's at least some stuff I say you should just at least be aware of if you're you know uh, an animation fan, anime fan. But uh, if you don't feel like you really needed more of the OVA, then yeah. I think that wraps it up. Unless you guys have anything really quickly that you want to go through. You guys good? Um, I'm good. No, yeah, I think we pretty much covered uh, covered most of it. Cool, awesome. We want well, to maybe uh, touch upon uh, trigger other stuff, maybe the stuff we're gonna get. Oh uh, yeah, go for it. Just yeah, go ahead and give us the rundown on uh, what we can expect from uh, from trigger in the okay. uh, immediate yeah. future. Sure. So uh, after a little bit, Academia wrapped up there at Anime Expo this past year. They announced a trio of new projects. The first one we're going to be getting is uh, Darling in the Franks. That's uh, F-R-A-N-K-X-X-X, I think. Three X's, I don't know. It has multiple uh, X's. There, there are more than one X. Uh, this is going to be a co-production with A1 Films, who's worked on a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, if you've seen any anime recently, you've seen something from A1. So it'll be interesting to see Trigger style with a more veteran anime studio. Maybe not veteran's the correct word, but one that gets a lot more work. Uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're one of the their their apparent company is Sony, I believe. So they are oh, wow. definitely a big box. They've they've got a lot of stuff. They do really small shows. They do really big shows like Fairy Tale. So they're a pretty big deal. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays. There, there's been a lot of previews lately. Uh, they're putting out a lot of the character designs and mecha designs because there's going to be robots. Uh, it doesn't seem like a bombastic mecha story like Grand Lagoon, but. Uh, mm-hmm. I, for the little bit I've seen so far, it looks interesting, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, after that, we've got Promare. Like I mentioned, uh, Imaishi's new work he'll be directing. It's going to be more Gurren Lagann and Dead Leaves, I think, the way they sort of hyped it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see a little more the traditional uh, uh, crazy, fluid animation style. And then lastly, they'll be doing uh, an adaptation of Gridman, this classic uh, Super Sentai series back from back in the day doing uh continuing the, from the japan animator expo short they did there mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of work done on those two yet they're right now i think darling and the franks is their priority right coming right out of uh little witch academia mm-hmm. but we'll see how much of uh the same dna carries over uh to that work do you know if gridman is a, a collaboration or is that just a trigger trigger uh, no that no that will be a collaboration so i mentioned uh a1 with darling and the franks uh, Promare is going to be a co-pro with a new studio called X-Flag. So okay. we'll see what they have to do here being new. And Gridman is actually being uh, co-produced with uh, Tsuburaya, the company that created the original Gridman. So, oh, cool. Yeah. So we'll see how the original stuff sort of plays over and see if there's any, uh, how much of an influence we've got of the original tokusatsu, uh, you know, filmography and that kind of stuff. Definitely. I'm surprised uh, Hideaki Yano might, uh, you know, try and put his thumb in that pie because I know he's all about <laughs> anything uh, tokusatsu yeah. related. There, yeah, there's definitely a lot in, in reading more of the research about Little Witch Academia I was going in today. And there's a lot of crossover more so than you would think between Trigger and Gainax and Kara. There's still a lot of uh, work that goes on between. So Gainax even did some in between for, and I believe key animation for Little Witch Academia, for instance. Mm-hmm. And you've got Kara working a little bit of the, that as well. Uh, you have Masayuki. That, I'm sorry. I was going to say there's a lot of talent, you know, in those studios still. Like, you know, a lot of people like to say, well, Gainax is sort of, you know, washed up at this point. But I mean, there's still a lot of very talented people that work there. Right. And it's it's really easy for, for us as Westerners to think of companies and the people that work for the companies as kind of bound to them, mm-hmm. being very loyal. 
But in, when you look in the anime production, a lot of uh, the animators, especially key animators, pretty much just freelancing, just go through these studios and just constantly work. Yes. So if you've seen any of Shirobako, that's a really great look into the process itself and how stressful that can be and how overworked a lot of these animators can be. Yeah, it's a wonderful show. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think that will do it for us for our uh, discussion uh, review a retrospective, if you can call it that, of uh, Little Witch Academia. And I uh, really appreciated both of you guys being on the show. Thank you, Tori. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you so much uh, for being our guest this week, uh, Tobias. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your, uh, your um, vast uh, swaths of knowledge of Studio Trigger-related things and general anime-related um, brain spewage. Yeah, <laughs> um, like, uh, put it so eloquently. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Um, if you guys want to talk more about trigger stuff or stuff in general, just feel free to give me a call and I'll be there to spew all over. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Very, very safe for work spewing, of course. Uh, well, I mean, if you guys want to do an 18 plus episode, <laughs> we, can, we can talk that. I'll keep it in my back pocket. But um, where can uh, where can people find you on the internet? So uh, primarily myself, uh, I'm really big into Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Reverend underscore Tobias. Uh, I'm sort of focusing more on panel presentations and uh, con appearances now uh, on Facebook. If you're not so much into Twitter, uh, I've just created a new page for that sort of branding. That being just Reverend Tobias. Pretty, pretty, uh, in this case, a pretty fresh new page. Haven't done too much with it yet. But uh, with my own panel appearances over the past year or so, sort of, uh, you know, sort of ramping up for that, I've, I've kind of been moving into sort of branding myself a little more. And if anybody's out there listening and you want me to come to your local convention, feel free to hit me up, let them know, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, and speaking of, it's hot off the presses, you being a panelist guest at Ichiban Con this year. Yep, Ichiban just announced me here. I've only been going there for about three, four years now, I think. and. It's been a good experience. I really enjoyed this whole uh, New Year's Eve convention. That's always been really fun. It's one of those low-key sort of mid-range con things that it's just been a lot of fun. Yeah, I was able to see you guys for the first time uh, and see sort of these up-and-coming, you know, panelists. Uh, just seeing a, a, a wide variety of content. You had uh, Charles Dunbar, a study of anime. Uh, been showing there the past couple of years. So to see him in person and to see his own panel is just it's an amazing experience. If anybody has yet to see him, him do his thing and you see a local Connie's at, please go see Charles Dunbar. Such an amazing presenter. He will always help you think of, think of things in, in new and different and interesting ways. His panels are always super fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Fascinating is certainly a word for, uh, for his content. Mm -hmm. But certainly. yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Really enjoy Ichiban. So I'm glad to be coming back here. I'm really glad to be there as, you know, official sponsored guest. Uh, so what are the other plays out there? I've got some uh, some of my classic catalog. I presented them, of course, things about sort of your trigger, uh, Evangelion specifically. I've got a guy in that retrospect. I mean, if you want to, uh, you know, go into that uh, hand to hand, Austin, uh, feel free. If you want to do like a, a guy next uh, history panel, I would be fine with that. Consider our hands joined. Yes, let's let's do it. And. Uh, and I've got a couple of ideas also that are running around for just like general, uh, you know, year review panels. That's pretty, pretty easy things to, to work on, uh, yeah. you know, how, how to con, how to, how to, you know, basically kind of go through 
what things you should avoid at conventions. You know, we talk about the basic stuff, you know, make sure you know where the food is, make sure you get your hotel room, but also things like your own physical, mental and emotional needs at conventions. Yes. That's something that a lot of people are easy, are really easy to forget. And uh, when you, when you let one of those, those, uh, one of those needs sort of go by the wayside, your entire experience starts to suffer. So that's been something I've been wanting to do. Uh, If that doesn't get accepted, I'll probably end up writing a blog post about that here because that's something I've been wanting to talk more about is these, these unspoken needs that you have at really stressful events, stressful social events, like I mentioned. Definitely. Uh, and um, I'm not sure if um if you have or not, but have you had a chance to check out the web series to Kawaii for Comfort? Yeah, I saw a little bit of that there. I haven't really caught up. I think uh like I think the, like the week or so when they got really big and they were kind of exploding on Twitter, uh I, I caught that and caught up and it's uh it, it definitely does what it sets out to do. It's it's very cringy in ways that it it intends to be cringy here. Uh yeah, it, it it's it's really kind of an interesting look at our culture and how it, it's not always as happy and fun as it may look. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, back when we uh, had that great uh, sit down interview with uh, with the creator, yes. uh, he definitely brought up a lot of those same, you know, ideas about um, mental health and um, taking care of yourself in the anime community and how, you know, like, you know, anime cons don't make your problems go away. They just no. they can. Yes. They can help you or they can be <laughs> kind of, uh, very much a problem. Um, and you just got to kind of work out those those unfortunate dark sides of even our most uh, beloved hobbies. Yeah, people can forget sometimes that like these things as a whole, like the convention scene and the anime uh, fandom itself can be a little toxic at times for right. mental, mental and physical health. Right. So. It's good to oh, know yeah. how to navigate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I'm hoping, uh, hoping that'll actually get approved this year as I've been really wanting to talk more about it. A lot of these unspoken rules and, and things that you don't get so much and the and the basic, you know, Facebook commentary and yes. group yeah. chat and forum chat over the past decade or so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's what I want to do here. Uh, I proposed one of doing just like the art of paneling where mm-hmm. I want to take the idea of what we did at, uh, at Amazement with that, the how to panel panel and even, yes. you know, John's how to panel panel. And take that and talk more about the culture itself. Because I feel like like us as panelists, that's just something people assume are at conventions. But we don't really talk about it in the same way you got a cosplay community, for instance. It's just kind of assumed that there will be nerds like us that will talk about stuff all day. Which, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll be there to talk stuff all day. But to talk more about uh, the actual presentation, to talk more about uh, what works, what doesn't work, and like why you do what you do. You know, in a lot of ways to expound pretty much what John was was talking about with his. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, if that does get approved, if you guys want to sort of go in all and all on that and sort of combine it into one big like how to panel panel and just talk, make it turn into like a group discussion uh, more so than just like a you know one way presentation. I think that's be something I'm I'm hoping it's only on the, on the uh, you know, at least uh, at the very least I want to talk more about it. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. um, speaking of um, speaking of panels and, and general like panel collaboration. Um, we have set up that, uh, well, you have set up and, uh, graciously allowed me to admin for you, the NC fan panelists, Facebook group. Right. And so if you, if anyone out there listening is uh, interested in paneling or wants to be a panelist or is a panelist, uh, currently in the NC area, um, check out that Facebook group and, uh, you can talk to us and, uh, a pretty decent, uh, handful of, uh, of other, um, up and coming or veteran panelists in our general area. And we'd love for you to be a part of that community. 
Yeah, yeah. We, we sort of created that in the, in the wake of Adam Aisman and the big talk we had on Sunday, you know, a couple of months back. But even if we kind of even open it up to more like a general Southeast thing, uh, yeah, sure. to get them a little more people, because I think there's like there's a couple of us, uh, you know, that are really into this idea, this hobby as it is, uh, that I think you know to spread a little more of that love here all over would be uh, in the most part a really good thing and a really way to talk more about what we do rather than just sort of silently judge people yeah you know from across the aisle which is a real it's a it's a it's a trap that you to fall into with negativity and just mm-hmm. silently judge people and well that's yeah that's one thing you can do i feel like we do better served as a community to be more open and talk and foster this this love because you've got a lot of people that do panels their first year and it kind of bombs because there i mean there have been times when i gave my from my first panels that it's just incredibly stressful experience mm-hmm. and you've got a lot of knowledge that you kind of have to remember and 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 speak right then and if you're not a very social person or very introverted it can be very difficult and to have a really bad experience can just kind of throw you off mm-hmm. i've come to a point now where i'm just broken as a person <laughs> so you just give me a laptop and a microphone and i will talk all day yes transcend uh, the brokenness yeah so i just kind of like it's kind of a point where i've kind of broken myself out of it completely mm-hmm. I think uh, I, at AWA, I did surrealism in anime, which I'm going to probably be also doing at Ichiban Khan. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was probably a little more intoxicated than I should have been. And I probably started a little more. I think uh, uh, my fiance actually told me that I probably could have been a little better uh, with the presentation part. But in the most part, I let the video speak for itself. So it became more of a slur, slur realism, slur realism in anime. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I think we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up now that I have totally ruined this entire episode. With this joke. But uh, thank you again, Tobias, and uh, we will see you uh, at least at Super Famicom, if not sooner. Yes, um, yes, and then, absolutely. And then shortly after that, at Ichiban Con, and. Um, we hope to have you back on the show as soon as humanly possible. Maybe we'll do an episode on panels. Maybe we'll do an episode on something else, Gynax or Trigger related. And we'd love to have you on. And we appreciate you coming on this time. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Again, just let me know what you guys figure out and I'll be there. <laughs> absolutely. All right. That does it for us. If you guys are looking for more information on Borderline panels, events or panels or podcasts, etc., please uh, check us out on Facebook. That is facebook.com slash borderline panels. If you're looking for our editorial article collection and the things we have coming on there in terms of blog posts and so forth, that is our website is um, borderlinepanels.wordpress.com. And you can also find this podcast that you're currently listening to on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and a few other podcast catchers that just grab this podcast without my consent. And I uh, still kind of appreciate it anyway. So um, wherever podcasts are sold, even though our podcast is for free. <laughs> but again, thank you guys for tuning in and we will see you next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.